Thank you, Mark. Um, this morning, uh, we have our, our entry into a new, new foray, a new series all about the Old Testament. And um, it's gonna be, I think it's going to be a really good summer series in terms of just getting to, I know people have asked me questions before, like, I wish I knew better the stories of the Bible, how things were laid out, how the story plays out. And so this is one of those series that helps you do that. We've got all kind of tools. We'll talk about how that helps you along that journey and um, all kind of places in Scripture. And I love this, is that just there's all these stories in the Old Testament that point us to just how much God loves us and wants to redeem us and all these imperfect people. Like, if you read the Old Testament, you definitely find out that when God wrote the Scriptures, the people who were writing it were not out to impress you with their own stuff, right? They were out to impress you with God. And so it leaves you with this awesome impression about who God is and what he wants from us. And this morning, we're going to discover that in the story of Babel, a story of the tower building in this city and what that was about, why the writers placed it there. And it's really this, you know, we named this, the title today, Making a Name for Yourself, about how they were trying to make this name for themselves. And uh, we can learn a lot about what God, how God feels about that and how he intervenes with us when it comes to that. This whole idea in the Tower of Babel of like making a name for yourself is still pretty big in our culture today. Like over the span of history, we still do it. We in the '90s, I think it was, Canon had this great slogan called "Image is everything," right? As they're taking pictures, but they didn't just come up with that phrase. That was a phrase that was in our culture. Image is everything, and with the advent of all the technology we have, with our our phones, and we can tweet, and we can do Facebook postings, we can do all this stuff. It's only magnified, this whole image thing, you know? And sometimes today in our culture, it's not just image as everything, like, look at me. Like, in the 80s and 90s, it might have been, like, look at all the stuff I have. And now it's, like, look at all the good stuff I do. And look how I'm a really good person. Like, but it's the same thing. It's a stretch for image. And I think that really comes up a lot for us when you do something like a class reunion, right? Like, if you've been to a class reunion, if you're not old enough to experience it, this is what it feels like. You get ready for your class reunion, and you're just... Start, thoughts start running through your head, right? Like, okay, when I go, which car should I drive? You know, like, should I drive the 15-year-old Dodge or the 7-year-old Toyota Corolla? Which one will impress them most, you know? Um, you start thinking about what clothes should I wear, you know? Should I, should I color in the gray on my beard or should I just let it out there to let them know how, you know, like they don't know how old I am? And... You know, you just, right? Don't you do this when you go to a class reunion? I, my father-in-law just actually came back from one last night. I said, how was your class reunion? He said, I, he said it was fine. He said, those people are really old. <laughs> so, you know, like you just, this is a great example of what happens in our head and in our culture when we go, wow, I just, I want to project something out there. I want to be liked. I want to, for people to love me or to be impressed with me. Maybe sometimes with people we don't. Why do we do that? Because I don't know about you, but like for my class reunion, I don't see anybody in my high school class. I don't live near them. And so I'm thinking these thoughts about people who I never see, who aren't really involved in my life, like it matters, like it's really important. And it just doesn't make any sense. So why do we do that? Because deep down in the core of our soul, every one of us wants to know I'm somebody, right? Like in our yearbook, we, maybe we didn't get voted you know, most likely to succeed. And maybe we don't need to be the most likely to succeed, but we at least want to be on the list, right? Like we don't want to be on the you're a loser list. We want to be on the you might, you might do something list. 
every one of us wants to know, am I valuable? Am I important? Am I significant? That's just a, a human question. And it's the question that we find in the story of the Tower to Babel. People who want to know, am I significant? Am I important? Is there something good going on here? And we find that in the story. And if you'll open your outline today, you can look on the screens. You can open up your Bible. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11. And I just want to read to you, give you a little context for the story of the Tower of Babel. Here we go. Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. The whole world had one language with a common vocabulary. And as people moved toward the east, they found a plain in Shinar, which is modern-day Babylonia, also in Iraq today. So they settled there. And they said to one another, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks as stones, and they used tar as mortar. And then they said, let's build ourselves a city with a tower with its top in the sky. Now you can imagine this is not uh, modern day New York, right? There's not a lot of skyscrapers back then. Like building a tower whose top would be in the sky was a pretty monumental feat. It was a pretty big deal. People are going to see it. It's going to really make a name for them. And they are out to make a name for themselves. So it goes on to say, let's build this tower at the top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't become scattered, so that we won't not matter anymore. Let's make this name for ourselves because we don't want to be scattered over the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the descendants of Adam were building. And so here's kind of the crux of the way this story is written. Here's like the main crust of this whole thing. And we'll see this later as we talk about it. The Lord said, there are one people, and they with one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Now nothing they plan will be too difficult for them. So let us go down there and mix up their language so that they won't understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth, and they stopped building the city. And this is why this name Babel, because the Lord turned the language of the whole earth into Babel. And from that place, the Lord scattered them all over the face of the earth. So we have the story of Babel. It's about making a name for themselves. It's about this story of how people were afraid of what might happen. And they said, we've got to do something. We've got to take control here. And off they went into this whole thing. And it's, the story really is kind of a warning about what happens when we try to do things ourselves apart from God. And it's also an invitation to a new kind of relationship with God, a new way of life that God wants to offer you and offer me. And so let's jump into the outline this morning. Let's jump into what is this story? What's the meaning behind this story? What can we learn from it? God has invited us to this new kind of relationship with him where we have, first, nothing to prove. The people in this story had something to prove. They wanted to make a name for themselves. But God invites us to a different kind of relationship. We all have those places in our life, things that we want to show off, things that we like about ourselves or that we would like to be true of ourselves. And so we're glad to show it off, to kind of promote it as who we are. Things that basically say to everybody else from our depth of our soul, listen, I'm somebody. I'm somebody. Look at this. This makes me somebody. The people in this story were scared that they would be scattered over the face of the earth, that they lose contact, that they would, they would be a nobody. And they didn't want that to happen. And we see in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, it says, And then they said, let's build a city for ourselves, a tower with the top in, its, the top in the sky. 
And let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't become scattered. Okay, so to really grasp the story, it would be best if we understood the context of the entire story, what what Genesis unwraps and develops as a theme for God, and then the context of when the story comes. Because the writer of Genesis chose to drop the story in exactly where he did. So first, understand the theme of the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis, is this. God is central. God is central to your whole life. And he will intervene any chance he gets to make sure you have a relationship with him. Okay? You may go off on your own, but God is going to draw you back. He's on this annual pursuit to rescue humanity and draw them back to himself. This is the pattern and the theme of Genesis, and you'll see it develop through every character story in the Old Testament. So where does this story fall? Well, we're only really about 2,000 years into the history of humanity. Okay? So Genesis 1 and 2, creation of man. God says, let us create man in our image. And he does. And he creates man in this garden of Eden, and it's beautiful, and he is this great reflection of God, and God walks with man in perfect harmony, an awesome relationship. But he decides right up front, free choice is important to love. You want to love me, we gotta, we got to be able to choose to love me. Otherwise, you're just a robot responding. And so he gives people free choice. Enter Genesis chapters 3 and 4. Man decides. Humanity decides. You know what, God? I don't know if we're really that important, and I'd like to know it. And so they fall succumbing to the same temptation that we fall to over and over and over, and that's maybe I could be more, more important if I do it my way. Maybe I should make this decision for myself. And so they do the one thing that God told them not to do in rebellion to God, but also just in this longing, like, am I important? They're answering this question in their soul. Am I important? I don't know if God's enough, so I'm going to go out and do it myself. So we find the fall, this pivotal point in all of history where man goes off his own way. What does God do? God intervenes. God says, my love demands I intervene. And so he sets up kind of a sacrifice. He shows them the sacrifice system and says, listen, this is what your sin does, and so I want you to be aware that sin always brings death, but that there's a way back to me, that I am full of mercy and compassion. I want to be in relationship with you. So thousand years go by or more, and what do we have? We have humanity living out this pattern over and over until the point where in every opportunity that God has given them, they have rejected. And in Genesis, in the story of the flood, we find that God actually says of humanity, there is not one who has an, less than an evil thought in their mind. All they think of all day long is evil, distancing themselves from me and doing wrong. And there's no hope. They won't turn to me. They don't, they don't have a, just even a seed in their heart of desiring good and desiring me, except this one man, Noah. Noah and his family. And God looks down at the project of humanity and he says if there is any hope for the train to get back on their tracks, it's through this guy because he has this trusted relationship with me. So God decides what probably man just tore his heart apart. I'm going to have to wipe out everyone and start again with just Noah and his family. And he does. And as he starts again with Noah and his family, this beautiful thing happens in the ark. And it is amazing when, as the family comes together and they repopulate the earth. And God, out of that whole situation, makes this first promise to God. The first time in all of humanity, well, in 
I'm doing stuff back there. All right. Look at that. All right. Let's go for. So, wow, that's not making any clicks or anything. That's fantastic. Hopefully, I won't throw this mic across the room with my hands talking like this. So, all right, so we have this whole situation now where God has brought them back and he's going to repopulate the earth and he makes the first promise, right? The first rainbow. He says, listen, I never want to go through that again. Humanity is way too important. And so I make this promise with this rainbow, this covenant with you, that I won't destroy humanity again like that. You can count on me for that. But I'm also going to be very involved. I'm going to make sure that the train stays on its tracks. I'm going to provide every opportunity for you to follow me. And so this is God's journey now. This is where we're at, and this is where this Tower of Babel falls in the story. And the writers drop it right in so we can see what happens when people run away from God and try to do it themselves, and just how much God wants to intervene. It's kind of, it's kind of amazing to think about the fact that over all that time, 6,000-some years ago till now, very little has changed. People still want to make a name for themselves. People still want to do things apart. I mean, isn't this the story of parenting? I mean, I've parented my kids over and over and over. What have I done, right? I watched them want to do things on their own, go their own way. And the question in my heart was just like, boy, like how long do I let them go before they hurt themselves, right? Or now that they're teenagers, just really how much is it going to cost me to let them do it their own way, right? That's, this is the story of humanity, and it's something that's just deep within us. And so, you know, as we look at the story of these people who are building this tower, we must be careful not to blame them as if they're doing something crazy. I can't believe them because they're doing exactly what every one of our hearts without God does. I want to prove something. I want to make a name for myself. I want to show the world that I'm somebody and that I'm not nothing, that I matter. The truth is what we believe about our worth and our value, it drives more about what we do than anything else we could think of. Like, you don't even know some of the decisions you make are influenced by what you believe about your worth and your value. And you make those decisions every single day. In seconds, right, you make those decisions all the time. You come into a room like this, and you decide where to sit. And you're deciding, like, where do I sit? Where's the best place? Do I want to sit right up front where... Sean's going to spit on me or call me out or do I want to sit in the back? Do I want to hide? Is there friends here? Like in a second, you make those decisions. And the lens that we look through has a lot to do about what do I believe about myself? Am I important? Am I valuable? What's God want from me? And if we're not careful, here's the thing. If our attention is on proving something, being something, we're distracted from what God has actually created us to be. We're distracted from what God desires for us most, and that's to be the beautiful creation that he made us. He invites us to live this life where we have nothing to prove because we are made in his image. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created every one of us in his image. We are the Imago Dei. That's the Latin image of God. I just, Mago Dei is just cool, right? It's like you say that and you're like, wow, that's, I mean, being the image of God is cool, but being the Imago Dei, that's cooler. That's like really cool, right? Being the Imago Dei means that you have been created uniquely. And here's the thing. There has never, ever, ever been a person quite like you on the planet. You are uniquely you. 
And when you can embrace that you are uniquely you and that God has created you in the image, when you can allow God to free you from trying to prove that you're somebody else or that you're important or that all these other things, you begin to embrace that God made you uniquely you and the contribution that you make is, can only be made by you. You are this incredible thing. You're this, you're just like this place and this piece of art. I, I remember um, being out in the mountains once, and I was reading this psalm, and the psalm talks about being like this artwork of God, you know, this artwork that he kind of lays in place. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, we are all this, like, great note in this symphony, almost like as I looked out over the mountains. Have you ever had that moment where you just you look out over everything and you think, how small am I? Like how little am I in the midst of all that there is? You just get this feeling of smallness. And as I sat there and I reflected on what God was speaking to me out of Scripture, I just had this realization of this. Here I am. I'm this little tiny note in God's symphony. I might not even be a note. Maybe I'm just like a little squiggly rest mark. But whatever I am, God put me there. And without that note in that symphony orchestra that God has written, it's not the same. It's missing beauty. It's missing what God intended. And you are that note. God has put every one of you here to play a certain role in all of humanity, to bring out the Imago Day, to reflect God. And only you can do that, but you'll only do it when you let go of trying to prove something, trying to be something that God hasn't created you to be. So we got to embrace what it means to be God's creation. But that can be hard because in our in our culture of narcissism and kind of image management and, you know, we can tweet and we can try to get the most followers, right? We can, we can, what do you want to do on YouTube, right? You want to get your viral video out there so you can get the most hits because then I can be a celebrity. I can show the world that I'm really somebody. We can show up on Facebook and try to get the most likes, and often, we are, have these selfies. That we're always taking pictures of ourselves and posting them on Facebook, right? Letting people know all about ourselves. Who knows what kind of person we are? Some of us need to be a little more discriminating about those kind of things, apparently. Some of us get tagged in pictures our wives take of us after. That thing jumped right out of the aisle, and the whole thing fell. It was, I didn't have anything to do with it. I'm telling you, I was set up for failure on that one, right? Listen, here we are, we live in this culture, right? And, and have, you ever, have you ever had this experience, maybe like you've tagged someone or showed a picture of someone on, on Facebook or you just showed a picture of someone and they're like, don't ever show that picture of me again. Untag me from that photo. And you're thinking, well, I was there, that's what you look like. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but that's just, that's, people see you that way. It's not like we can walk through life like, this is my best side. Hi, how y'all doing? This is how I like you to see me. I mean, we get caught up in it, and when we do, it distracts us from being a mago Dei, the image of God. That's what God desires for us. Now, the thing is that motivation here is key. I mean, it's not wrong to post pictures on Facebook. It's not wrong for you to have certain things or to be excited and celebrate certain things in your life. But the real question here is what's going on in your heart? Why is that thing so important to you? What are you trying to project? Because down deep, when there's something to prove, it's distancing you from God. It's keeping you from enjoying the Imago Dei, from enjoying that he is proud of the creation you are and he wants to totally set it free. And so we need to understand that we are innately valuable to God because we're his creation. 
There's nothing you can do to make it better, to, to improve upon it, except allow God to set you free. Allow God to move in your life. That's what makes it improved when God reflects even brighter through us. And so we ask this question when we have to decide, do I want to make a name for myself? Do I want others to see this image that I want them to see? Or am I ready for them to see who God created? Do I allow them to see the reflection of God? Am I making a name for God and expressing his image? Because we have a choice to make. The choice is this. Do I want to try to find fulfillment and pleasure myself by myself where I can be in control, or do I want to find it in God? Because that's what the story is about, him welcoming us and intervening and saying, I want you to find it in me. You'll only ever find that pleasure in me. You'll only ever find that freedom in me. So what are you trying to prove? That's the question of your heart. What is it that you want to prove to other people? Who is it? that you want to prove something to. God wants to set you free from that so that you can be the Imago Dei, the person that he created you to be. One of the best ways for you to experience that and know it and live it out is to know God. If you begin to know his heart and how he's interacted with others, you know, sometimes, I ask this question all the time, like when my family still says, I can't believe you're a pastor. I'm like, I, I can't really either. And I'm always asking God, what in the world were you thinking, right? But here's the thing. As I have read this book, as I have discovered and walked through the Old Testament, do you know what I see? I see God choosing people all the time just like me. They don't have their act together. They're not confident, but they're desperate to know Jesus. They're desperate to know God and to be in relationship with him, and that's what God invites you to. And so this summer, I invite you to the same thing. If you look on, if you flip your outline over for a second, on the back, every week of that outline, we're going to have a place for further study, a place for you to dig in and understand and know God better. So that's one of your resources. And in the back today, we also have this great resource. Um, this one's free. It's a chronological Bible reading plan. So it's a way for you to begin in 61 days, just over the summer, to highlight the stories of Scripture where you will find God's heart. You will know how much he loves others and how much he loves you and discover freedom in it. If, if that's, uh, you want something more than that or something prettier than that, there's also this discipleship journal that's a good way for you to walk through Scripture and to write it out, to record, how is God interacting with me? How am I discovering the freedom that God wants to give me? And then there's this awesome uh, book back there that you can purchase as well. It's called The Story. It's kind of a hybrid Bible. They've taken the chapters and the verses out so that you're not distracted by anything else but the story of God. And it's written with just some excerpts of Bible chronologically so you can get what is the story and how did it develop. And there's a little commentary in there, I think, by Max Lucado and some others who help you understand, oh, this is the context, this is what's happening. I want to encourage you, like this summer, this is an opportunity for you to celebrate and be free. Say, I'm not going to try to prove anything anymore. I'm going to know who God is. The more you get to know that you are the Imago Dei, the more you embrace that he innately values you and has created you to be something in the world, the more freedom you experience, the less distraction you'll have and distance you'll have from God and the closer you'll feel to him, the more relationship you'll build with him. And so God invites us first into this relationship and in a way of life where we have nothing to prove. But then secondly, he also invites us into this relationship where we also have nothing to lose. 
where we can experience what it's, to li- what it's like to live in a way that says, I don't have anything to prove, but I also have nothing to lose. Like the people of the tower, there's too many times in our life that we are just caught up in, do, will I succeed? You know, if I don't succeed, if I don't make my way in the world, if I don't get everything together, then everything's going to fall apart. And I'm going to be a failure. And people are going to know that about me. Or we live in this world where we try to protect ourselves and make everything come together and try to make sure everything is lined up for ourselves. And if we don't, we're afraid of what might happen, that our world might fall apart, that we might not be in control. Because down deep, every one of us wants to be loved, accepted, important. And this is the relationship that God invites us into, to live in the freedom of that, to be free from our fears. And that's what the people of the tower that build the tower felt like. They were afraid. Look in Genesis 11, 5 through 7. It says, The Lord came down to see the city, the tower that the descendants of Adam were building. And the Lord said, There are one people with one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Now nothing they plan will be too difficult for them. So let us go down there and mix up their language so they won't understand each other. So here's where the story gets good and the the pivot point of the whole story is about. Here's people who had the self-ambition, right? They wanted to prove something. They were afraid of what might get lost. In fact, if we look at the story earlier, it says that they built this tower out of bricks. And what did they use for mortar? Remember in the story earlier, it says they used tar. Okay, now if you rewind the tape a little bit, Some of you who are familiar with the building of another piece of architecture, what else used tar to be built? The ark. What are they trying to protect themselves from? Yeah, right? We are going to build a tower to the sky. We're going to coat it with tar. We're going to make sure that I don't really trust that God's going to take care of me, so I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to make sure. Does this sound like a familiar story to you? some temptation that we all have in our lives. I, you know, I prayed about that, but I'm going to go ahead and do all this other stuff because God might not act on my behalf. God might not really be for me, so I'm going to hedge my bets while uh, instead of listening and responding to God. And so this is the story of the people of the Tower of Babel. Josephus actually tells a story in extra-biblical history. He talks about the leader of these people being named Nimrod. So if you ever wondered where that term came from, Nimrod, you're about to find out. So when someone calls you a Nimrod, you'll know what they're referring to. Nimrod was this great warrior, okay? He was this great leader, and he gathered all these people together to build this tower to show God, listen, I, we, I got our act together. We don't need you. We can figure this out for ourselves. And re- history records this guy as someone who wanted to impress. He was like the first Frank Sinatra, right? I did it my way. Look, I did it my way. I got this stuff all together. This is, this is who he is. And the text actually reads, this is really cool. The text actually reads, the writer writes this in a way that you can get this, that the Lord said that he had to descend. He had to come down. He said, let us go down and see this thing that they're building. And what is really, it's not like God's like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to check out of heaven here and get some, like God's everywhere. So what the writer's really indicating to us is God is like looking down from heaven going, I can hardly see that thing you're building down there. It is so puny. So I'm going to come down so I can get a closer look because i got to get my eyeball really, really close because it's so small. In other words, God's saying, 
I'm not impressed. Like all that stuff that you do to protect yourself, to make it go, to make it work, I'm not impressed because what I want is you. What I want is a relationship with you. Many of us have built our whole lives around either taking risks because we thought if I take this risk, it'll prove something, it'll make me important, I'll make sure that it all comes together, and we've thrown ourselves into it to make sure we wouldn't fail, to make sure everything came together. Or we've made our lives maybe around the opposite and said, I'm not taking any risks. Like, I don't take risks because if I take a risk, I might fail, and that might speak to something about myself, might reinforce something I believe about myself. This is the freedom that God wants to offer you. No longer afraid of all these fears about what, what you have to control or what you have to do. God says, I want to set you free from your self-doubts. I want to set you free from your fears. I want to set you free from all of that so that you can be my child, so that you can live in a real relationship with you. In other words, God's saying, you, listen, you have nothing to prove. And in a relationship with me, you have nothing to lose, nothing that can be taken from you. This is the kind of relationship he wants with you. It's like that old 80s cheap trick song. I want you to want me, right? Some of you are like, well, I recognized the song before you sang it. (laughs) This is what God's, God's like singing that song over you. I want you to want me. I love when you need me. Because in that relationship, you will get free. You will be fulfilled. You will come to know what it means to really live. And that's what God invites us to. This is called, in the Old Testament, it's called a covenantal relationship. It's the story that we read, and we'll read more more about it next week with Abraham, where God invites us into this covenantal relationship. It's kind of like when you get married and you say, I do, right? Like, when you say, I do, when you get married, you're saying, I will trust in you, and I will act in a trustworthy way with you. That's what that's all about. Before I got married... Some of you may remember many, many moons ago before uh, when you were young or when you were, before you were getting married, when you were dating someone, you were out to impress them, right? It's kind of a big deal to impress someone. Like, I, I want to impress my wife, to set my best foot forward. Um, I've not really got a best foot, so I had to fake it a lot, right? I, I actually took care of my hair back then when I had hair. Like, you know, it was, it was a big deal to impress someone. And the whole time you're dating someone leading up to marriage, what are you trying to do? You just, you're trying to win them, you're trying to impress them, and, but then something happens. You stand up on stage, and you go through a wedding ceremony, and at that place, something transitions. You're no longer out to impress them, right? You're making a covenantal relationship where you say, I do. You're saying, I will trust you. Now, when I got married, I didn't know everything would work out. I didn't know that, like, Susie would change or I wouldn't change. I didn't know that everything would be perfect. I had no idea. We just, we both loved God and we made this commitment before God that said to death do us part and we meant it. So you better get your act together because I ain't leaving, right? That's, that's what was going on there. We made a trust commitment to each other. Was it perfect and is it perfect? Nope, it's not. Ask my wife, she'll tell you all the dirty details on that, but it's not but we trust. We've committed to trust each other even when things aren't going well or right. And this is the relationship that God wants to invite you into, a covenantal relationship where you trust him, where you trust him and don't try to take control yourself, but enjoy knowing him. And God loves us so much. This is a lesson of the story. God loves you so much. He will go out of his way to intervene to make sure you have the best shot at that relationship. 
covenantal relationship is that kind of commitment. The text says that now nothing they do will be impossible for them. What's it saying there? It's saying God's not afraid of what they do. God's actually saying if they get addicted to success, if they build this tower and do it their own way, they'll just keep doing that. And they'll never have the richness of a relationship with me. They'll never truly find what it means to be alive. And rather than have them do it their own way and control of it, I would rather intervene because I just came from the flood. I saw where it led, and I won't have it lead there again. And so God intervenes in their relationship. God says, I am going to scatter them. I am going to confuse their language. I'm going to scatter them over the earth because maybe in scattering them, they'll learn to depend on me. Maybe if they can't communicate with each other, They'll choose to communicate with me, and that will bring them a much greater richness in life, a much better place in life. Listen, God loves you so much, he won't let you walk away from him. He's not going to let you run away from him. He is going to intervene over and over and over again. You know, he's been shaping everything in your life so that you could be on a journey with him. I just, I was over visiting someone yesterday in the hospital, and they were in a car accident, and man, they... This person has come a long way with God in just a short time. And hearing them talk about God's provision in their life and seeing what God's doing and how they loved God even more now than ever. And then sitting there with um, their sister and who's not on a journey with God and is ex- ex- describing her journey. It's like, I don't even know if I am on a journey, but something happened here. Something important happened here. And I said, you know, I said, you might not know if you're on a journey but God does, and he's been on a journey with you, shaping your life, giving you opportunities like this one that you might open your heart to him and be receptive, that you might know the God who loves your sister also loves you. That's the journey that God has with us. And that means sometimes in the most surprising and unfortunate circumstances, we have an opportunity to discover God. And God's right there waiting to be discovered. I want you to watch this story of uh, Stephen Baldwin. Um, It's this really cool testimony about how he came to know God, how God surprised him. Let's watch. I'd say what was missing was the satisfaction. My life before Christ was uh, focused on making money. My life before Christ was a a totally day-in and day-out existence that was, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, uh, an existence of self-absorbance. And, you know, just doing what you normally do when you're trying to maintain a career in the movie business. Loving Jesus is what's most important to me. Sounds hokey, but it's the truth. My life is God's life in me for Him to do with what He wants. My wife and I were living in Tucson, Arizona about 16 years ago almost, and through the family, we hired this cleaning woman. She's working with us for about two weeks, and my wife kind of notices her singing that she does every day in her work. Eventually, after a few more days of this, went to Augusta and said, you know, I noticed you're singing and um, I was just curious, you know, 
Why is every song about Jesus? Uh, perhaps there's another tune in your repertoire, so to speak. Um, and Augusta had a very interesting reaction uh, to the question. She literally burst out laughing in my wife's face. <laughs> I just had to do that, sir. And Augusta said, you know, again, um, understand that the reason that I'm laughing is uh, you think the only reason that I'm here is to clean your house. Uh, so my wife, she says, honey, um, I, I'd like to share with you something that Augusta just told me. And I said, what's that, dear? And she said, uh, well, she just explained to me that the real reason she's here is because in the future, you and I are going to become born-again Christians, and at some point after that, we're going to have our own ministry. And I said, really? Hmm. At that point in my career, I was making more money than I could ever wildly imagine. And just to, to hear uh, that idea vocalized at that point in time was utterly ridiculous. Uh, but um, that's the beginning of the journey for me. When I got to a place of willingness to just simply say to myself, Okay, I'm willing to believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And I'm now going to ask God to show me what that means. And I'm going to read the Bible and apply it to my life to the best of my ability to have that understanding. That's when uh, this whole experience became very, very real for me. What a beautiful story, right? Like, here's Stephen Baldwin building this tower in his life and trying to prove that he's worth something. Look, we're somebody. Look, we have this career. And God sends this cleaning lady into his life, someone who, you know, very much like, I'm sure she made a lot of money. I'm sure there was something at risk for her going through and doing her thing, but she was just someone who could live. She was free, right, to live like she had nothing to prove and nothing to lose. And so when asked, she just said, well, I think I'm here because Jesus put me in your path so that you could know him, so that you could be transformed by him. Seemed ridiculous, except that's exactly what happened. The tower fell down. He realized that I don't have any fulfillment in this tower that I'm building, but I could be really alive in God. There's too often in our lives that we build these towers, things that we want to protect ourselves from, things that we think we need to prove. And in building those towers, we trust in them. We think that there is this if-then causality thinking of, look, if I do this, then I can make this and this and this happen. But we know that life really doesn't work that way. I mean, the lesson of this story, right, is that causal thinking doesn't happen. You can do all this stuff and still not be protected, still not have everything work out for you. Why? Because a lot of times it's about God going, I love you and I love you too much to let you wander off. So maybe what we need to really learn is that there is no if, there's just God. We can't control the situations that we so desperately think we have to, but we can trust in God. And say, God, you guide me, you lead me, I'll enter into a real relationship with you, I'll allow you to ultimately fulfill everything in my life. And we don't know what happened in this story, in the story of Babel. I mean, God scattered them, he confused their language, it doesn't say whether they chose him or not. But what we do know is that God intervened. That God said, I love you, 
I love you. You are the Imago Dei, and I want you to be free. Free to choose me. Free to have a relationship with me. So this morning I ask you, what plans are you making? What fears do you have that you're worrying you and you're trying to control and you think if you make the right decisions it'll happen? Where is it that you're trying to succeed or avoiding risk and not trying something because you're afraid you'll fail? And God says, I want to set you free. The gift I've made you to be to the world is the only gift you need to worry about. If you build a relationship with me where you trust me, you can live like you have nothing to prove and nothing to lose. The question is, will you accept that love? That's really the only question. Will you accept that that's what he wants to give to you? If you pull out just for a moment, the worship team is going to come up and sing, and I want you to take a moment with your response card. Take a moment in this moment, because this might be the moment, the Tower of Babel moment for you to say, that thing that I've been holding on to, that thing or that person I've been trying to prove something to, this is the moment that instead of God having to tear it down, I'm going to leave it be. I'm going to let it crumble so that I can follow Jesus, so I can be really alive. And so maybe you ask yourself today, like, what is it that you fear? You're afraid it's going to happen, and you need to write it down. And you need to write it down so someone can pray for you, or you need to write it down, you need to put it in the dash of your car, and every time you look at it and it comes to mind, you say, God, I choose to trust in you. Every time you see it and it bothers you, you pick up your Bible and you read the next story and you say, look how God took care of them. And if God will take care of them, God will take care of me. God is inviting me into a different relationship, one where there's freedom. So I challenge you today, don't don't let this moment go by. Don't that deep question that's in your heart, don't let it just pass and go, oh, that was really good and I'm going to live my life. Be free. Be in relationship with God. Enter into something like you've never entered into before. Let me pray for you. God, thank you this morning for your invitation to something better, something greater, something amazing. Thank you for intervening in every single one of our lives, shaping our lives so that we might find you and know you and become fully alive in you. God, I pray that all the distractions, the towers in our life, the image, the things that we worry about, the things we try to control, I pray that you would set us free. Set us free to worship you, to know you. Set us free from being slaves to our fears and to our desire to prove something to the world so that we can be who you've created us to be, so that we can welcome and be receptive to how you're moving in our lives. So God, I pray that you'd name it for us through the Holy Spirit today and that we would begin a journey, Lord, in your word of being free, to love you, to enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.